0: The views expressed on this broadcast of the Take 12 Recovery Radio Show do not necessarily reflect those of KHLT Recovery Broadcasting or its affiliates. KHLT and
1: Take12Radio.com are not affiliated with any particular 12-step fellowship. Remember me, I'm the one.
0: Welcome to Walking Through the Big Book with Chris Schroeder and Monty Meyer. And now, here's those two guys who investigate prior to contempt, Chris and the Monty Man. Well, welcome family once again. To walking through the big book with myself and our friend Chris Schroeder. Hi, Chris.
1: How's it going, Monty?
0: It is spectacular. We're in our new uh, new studio. Well, we're not just a studio now. We're a studio inside of a radio station, so we're feeling pretty important.
1: <laughs> you know, that's a great move for, for you, Monty, and well deserved.
0: Well, thanks for moving you on up
1: uh, to uh, to a real deal studio. That's great.
0: Yeah, it's it's, it's a lot of fun. We still got to... Uh, Do a lot of things. But one of the biggest things we're going to do next is put in the uh, the uh, the sound padding inside the actual sound booth here. And that's going to be it's going to make it sound a lot better than folks. So if you're listening to you're listening to this now, the next show is going to sound a whole lot better sound wise. So what are we doing today?
1: Well, Monty, we are on chapter one. We've we've spent uh, several weeks, and we haven't even gotten to page one in the book yet. Uh, <laughs> we're going to be starting at page one on Bill's story. All right. You know, one of the things I wanted to talk about a little bit that's not in uh, not in this book, but if you get really interested in AA history and the like, what you'll mm-hmm. do is you'll you'll start reading some of the books that's been written. There's been numerous biographies. Uh, written that tell the story of uh of bill wilson there's a lot of uh you know there's a lot of like non conference approved uh uh stuff out there sure. that is uh that's very very interesting and you know what what it does is it really paints uh, it paints an authentic picture of what Bill wilson was like but i think uh in his childhood a few things happened that were um, i i think pivotal in how his character developed. one of them was is uh, very when he was very, very young, his his father was uh, was a stone cutter. He worked in the marble mine. And what happened was I think the marble played out in uh, in East Dorset where he was living and his father chose to follow the marble. And what he did was he moved up to Canada and in effect, uh left the family. Uh so uh so Bill Wilson, in, in you know, in all actuality, became uh, fatherless at that time. He had uh, very little uh, uh, contact with his father at that period of time, and his mother was living then with uh, with her parents, uh, the the Griffiths. Now, there's been a number of people who've uh, made the the sojourn to East Dorset, Vermont, to go to the Wilson House. Uh, the original uh, hotel that the Griffiths operated, and I've had the opportunity to do a number of presentations up there, and it's it's very interesting for anyone that you know wants to uh, wants to really dig into that that history and see Bill Wilson's grave and all that. Well, that's what you do you go up to East Dorset and visit the Wilson House. But as uh, as Bill Wilson was growing up, his mother then became very very interested in nursing and disappeared basically to become, uh, I believe it was, I believe she went through nursing and became a doctor. I, I'm not, you know, there's going to be uh, AA historians that are that are going to be calling you up, Monty, and saying, he got that wrong. You know, it's been a long, long time since I've uh, <laughs> studied the, the actual history. But uh, I've learned enough to be able to, to paint the, the type of picture I need to paint uh, uh, as far as the recovery program and this book is concerned. But in effect, Bill was uh, was mainly raised by his grandparents, and you know so, something like that'll uh, will will put a uh, you know put a uh, a crack in in your in your spirit as you're growing up,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: uh, you know sometimes you um, uh, you uh, react in different ways as far as uh, how your character develops. Sure. I think he he became the type of person who had to be a number one guy he he became uh, the ty- type of person who was uh, very very much attached to the image he thinks uh, uh, he's giving off to other people and and uh, you know this this may or may not have uh, helped to develop uh, the type of uh, spiritual condition that can lead to alcoholism uh but i you know i believe uh, you know i believe we can be impacted in our early years and uh, the and that can contribute to us later, becoming uh, dependent on uh, on alcohol and drugs. Yeah, I think many of the many of the experts would uh, would probably agree. Anyway, I'm going to start uh, page one, chapter one, Bill's story. War fever rang high in the New England town to which we were were new. To which we knew, young officers from Plattsburgh were assigned, and we were flattered when the first citizens took us to their homes, making making us feel heroic. He uh, he was a World war war one vet. Here was love, applause, war, moments sublime with intervals hilarious. I was part of life at last, and in the midst of the excitement, I discovered liquor. I forgot the strong warnings and the prejudices of my people concerning drink. His grandfather was an alcoholic, and his grandfather actually had what was uh, called, prior to the book Alcoholics Anonymous, a religious conversion experience. Mm -hmm. One day, he walked up on the mountain with a bottle of booze. And he had he had a transformational religious experience on that mountain, came back down from the mountain, it was Sunday, uh, pushed the preacher aside in his church, and started talking about God. And prior to that, he was very, very much an agnostic.
0: Oh, wow.
1: So, so his grandfather had gotten sober through a religious conversion experience. So mm-hmm. obviously there was, there was warnings in the house uh, about liquor because his, his grandfather was pretty bad. I mean, he, his grandfather owned a bar, you know, so you could imagine that it, it, would get, uh, it would get pretty bad. Yeah. I was part of life at last, and in the midst of the excitement, I discovered liquor. Uh, uh, in time, we sailed for over there, Europe, and I was very lonely and again turned to alcohol. We landed in England, and I visited Winchester Cathedral. Much moved, I wandered outside. My attention was caught by a doggerel on an old tombstone. Here lies a Hampshire gren- grenadier who caught his death drinking small cold beer. A good soldier is ne'er forgot whether he dieth by musket or by pot.
0: <laughs> now, there's a lot of
1: people in, uh, in, in 12-step programs that don't like you to talk about uh, about drugs, especially if it's an, an alcohol 12-step meeting. Right. And you can always go back to them and say, hey, they talk about pot. I'm yeah, warning. there
0: you go. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Ominous warning, which I failed to heed. 22 and a veteran of foreign wars, I went home at last. I fancied myself a leader, for had not the men of my battery given me a special token of appreciation... My talent for leadership, I imagine, would place me at the head of vast enterprises, which I would manage with the utmost assurance. Now, is, is that a, 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 great, a great picture of, uh, of uh, someone with uh, you know, a huge ego?
0: Oh, man, is it ever.
1: You know, grandiosity, you know, starting up right away, <laughs> might maybe get... in his early 20s.
0: I'm going to be in charge, man. I'm going to be in those high-rises.
1: Yeah. I don't know about you, but did you ever have bar stool uh, fantasies? You'd figure out how you were going to run all these businesses. And, oh,
0: absolutely, you know? man! I'd sit down with my buddies, and we'd 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 save the world, and we would be recognized. Doggone oh, it!
1: Yeah, you know how could anyone pass up on this level of genius? Yeah. <laughs> and then you would fall off the bar stool and vomit.
0: Yeah, that's right. <laughs>
1: Unbelievable. I took a night law course and, and obtained employment as, as an investigator for a surety company. Now, this is funny. He, he did go to law school, but, um, but I think it was his last exam. It was one of the last exams, and he would have been a lawyer, uh, or he, he would have finished his degree. And he just, he, he just didn't show. He got drunk and didn't show. Mm-hmm. So he went through all this time training for law and said, nah. you know, I don't know about you, Monty, but I was a good starter. You know, yeah. <laughs> I started a lot of things. I, I, you know, I, I went to, uh, I, went, I joined the Boy Scouts. I went on one camp out. Um, I decided to learn the guitar. I took two guitar lessons. Uh, you know, I joined the wrestling team. I went to one practice. You know, I, I, was, I was a great starter, and I just never could finish. So that must be, that must be one of the attributes of the alcoholic. It,
0: it probably is, yeah.
1: The drive for success was on. I proved to the world I was important. My work took me about Wall Street, and little by little I became interested in the market. Many people lost money, but some became very rich. Why not I? I studied economics and business as well as law. Potential alcoholic that I was, I nearly failed my law course. At one of the finals, I was too drunk to think or write. Though my drinking was not yet continuous, it disturbed my wife. We had long talks when I would still her forebodings by telling her that men of genius conceived their best projects when drunk, that the most majestic constructions of philosophical thought were so derived. Don't you love that? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Honey, I think you're drinking a little too much. Uh, No, honey, uh, the most majestic constructions of philosophical thought are done while you're drinking.
0: That's right. You betcha. (laughs)
1: unbelievable. That,
0: that's like the guy that says, Oh, I drive better when I'm drunk.
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You yeah. know, you, you know. <laughs> I, I, I went, I went drunk one time, Monty, to get my license back for a DUI.
0: Oh, you gotta I, be kidding. Can you
1: imagine? Because I figured I could do better with all those authorities. If I was a little bit looped up, mm-hmm. they were not amused.
0: No, I suppose not.
1: <laughs> By the time I had completed the course, I knew the law was not for me. Uh, The inviting maelstrom of Wall Street had me in its grip. Business and financial leaders were my heroes. Out of this alloy of drink and speculation, I commenced to forge the weapon that one day would turn in its flight like a boomerang and all but cut me to ribbons. Living modestly, my wife and I saved $1,000. It went into certain securities, then cheap and rather unpopular. I rightly imagined that they would someday have a great rise. I failed to persuade my broker friends to send me out looking over... uh, factories and managements but my wife and i decided to go anyway i had developed the theory that most people lost money on stocks through ignorance of markets i discovered many more reasons later what bill decided to do well really what bill was doing was he was trying to talk you out of your money so he could invest it and then share in the profits uh uh, that basically was his economic model And he went around to these businesses and said, listen, I'll tell you what, I will go and I will study these businesses up close and personal. I'll meet with everybody at these factories and in these industries, and I'll find out really what's going on. And then I can tell you whether or not it's worth investing in stock. But he couldn't get anybody to really pay him for it. So he decided he would go and he would do it on his own, and then he would sell the information. Mm -hmm. He he became... um, basically one of the first stock analysts, I guess, you know, a shyster analyst. But what he would do was he would show up in these towns and he would go to the bars and he would drink and he would wait for the workers to get off work and then he'd find out the scoop from the workers. You know, (laughs) good job if you can get it. Yeah. (laughs) uh we gave up our positions and off we roared on a motorcycle the sidecar stuffed with tent blankets and a change of clothes and three huge volumes of financial reference service our friends thought a lunacy commission should be appointed perhaps they were right i had had some success at speculation so we had a little money but we once worked on a farm for a month to avoid drawing on our small capital that was the last honest manual labor on my part for many a day We covered the whole eastern United States in a year. At the end of it, my reports to Wall Street procured me a position there and the use of a large expense account. The exercise of an option brought in more money, leaving us with a profit of several thousand dollars for that year. For the next few years, fortune threw money and applause my way. I had arrived. My judgment and ideas were followed by many to the tune of paper millions. The great boom of the late twenties was seething and swelling. Drink was taking an important and exhilarating part in my life. You know, up until a few years ago, Monty, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very close to a lot of financial people because I live very close to New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, and up until probably the last 10 years, it was expected that you would take people out and party like a fool with them if they were clients of yours. You, would, you literally would be given thousands of dollars a night, uh, you know, in expense account to take these people out and wine and dine and take them to the clubs and, you know, buy them $500 bottles of champagne. I, I mean, it, it was, you know, some people were expected to do that. Hmm. That's, um, that trend has changed, you know, uh, which is a good thing, I think. Yeah. There was loud talk in the jazz places uptown. Everyone spent in thousands and chattered in millions. Scoffers could scoff and be damned. I made a host of fairweather friends. Here he starts talking about uh, how his drinking is, uh, is beginning, to, uh, beginning to show signs of problems. My drinking assumed more serious proportions, continuing all day and almost every night. Um, the remonstrances of my friends terminated in a row, and I became a lone wolf. There were many unhappy scenes in our sumptuous apartment. There had been no real infidelity for loyalty to my wife helped at times by extreme drunkenness kept me out of those scrapes. You know, there are there are places in the book where I don't really see that he's being a hundred percent honest.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I won't <laughs> I
1: won't mention this last sentence.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you find from some of the non conference approved literature a whole different story. Yeah. Anyway, in nineteen twenty nine I contracted golf fever. We went at once to the country. My wife to a applaud while I started to overtake Walter Hagen. Walter Hagen uh, was, uh, you know, uh, was one of the the huge golfers back Mm -hmm. then, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, uh, like Arnold Palmer would have been 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Liquor caught up with me much faster than I came up behind Walter. I began to be jittery in the morning, golf permitting, drinking every day and every night, It was fun to chrome around the exclusive course, which had inspired such awe in me as a lad. I I acquired the impeccable coat of tan one sees upon the well to do. The local banker watched me whirl fat checks in and out of his till with amused skepticism. Abruptly, in October 1929, hell broke loose on the New York Stock Exchange. After one of those days of inferno, I wobbled from a hotel bar to a brokerage office. It was eight o'clock, five hours after the market closed. The ticker still clanked. I was staring at an inch of tape which bore the inscription XYZ 32. It had been 52 that morning. I was finished and so were many friends. The papers reported men jumping to death from the towers of high finance. That disgusted me. I would not jump, I went back to the bar. My friends had dropped several million since 10 o'clock. So what, tomorrow was another day. As I drank, the old fierce determination to win came back much of uh much of the people many of the people who lost money in uh, the the great depression had did so uh because basically they borrowed the stock in other words let's say a stock was at $20 you could put a down payment on that stock and then own it but if the stock went down they would call you on it and you would have you would have to pay back whatever uh the loss was uh So a lot, because the stock market was going up like crazy in those days, a lot of people did that. Mm -hmm. Because for a small amount of money, you stood to gain huge amounts of uh, of profit. Yeah. Uh, But when a stock market hits and, you know, you're on margin like that, um, you can be in big trouble. And and that's what happened to Bill. Next morning, I telephoned a friend in Montreal. He had plenty of money left and and thought I had better go to Canada. By the following spring, we were living in our accustomed style. I felt like Napoleon returning from Elba. No St. Helena for me. But drinking caught up with me again, and my generous friend had to let me go. This time we stayed broke. What had happened is the guy knew about Bill's drinking and made him swear that he wasn't going to drink. He had to sign a piece of paper saying, I promise I won't drink or you will fire me. It was one of those things. And... The, the, the issue here that alcoholics should pay attention to is he had everything to lose and nothing to gain from taking a drink, mm-hmm. and he took a drink. He knew that he would get caught, and he knew that he would get fired, and he knew that he was going to be ruined financially, and guess what he did anyway?
0: Did it anyway, yeah.
1: He did it anyway. Uh, this is one of the most misunderstood aspects about alcoholism. People really think we should just make a decision to not drink and then not drink.
0: Mm-hmm. You
1: know, I mean, I mean, Bill threw his life away on one drunk, and he knew he was doing it. Uh, he did not have the power to not go to the bar and get drunk. Um, this this led him, I believe, to really being able to put together uh, step one and and the powerlessness that manifests in an alcoholic we went to live with my wife's parents i found a job and then lost it as a result of a brawl with a taxi driver (laughs) mercifully no one could guess that i was to have no real unemployment for five years or hardly draw a sober breath ended up moving back to a, a relatively modest apartment in brooklyn I think it was Brooklyn, and his wife got a job at one of the Macy's department stores or whatever. And Bill just could not, uh, just could not work. Uh, you know, when when you have to drink almost all the time, it's really hard to get a job. It, you know, there are still <laughs> some trades out there in construction where it's okay, but you know, it's it's not very it's not very well looked upon by corporate America these days. Uh, going in drunk every day,
0: we're we're, were painters known to be. Uh drinkers back where you're from?
1: Uh, Well, painters, uh, masons, uh, people who do stucco, iron workers, uh, many of them, uh, even to this day, it's not a problem for them to have four or five beers at lunch. Their their foremans or their, you know, their people just couldn't say anything to them because it's just done by so many of them. But, you know, there's really very few, uh, very few employment opportunities, serious employment opportunities out there today where they'll allow you to do that, mm-hmm, but right. you know, I come from the construction field, and uh, and uh, as an electrician, it was frowned upon to drink during work. Uh, but some of the trades, uh, you you weren't really trusted if you didn't, you know. So, uh, how about so things that. have changed? You know, you know, every year that goes by. Uh, I think there's a more and more enlightened uh understanding, whether it's being forced on us by insurance companies who are tired of paying liability claims for drunken accidents or, or whatever, but it's becoming uh, less and less acceptable for people to be impaired mm-hmm. in the work environment. And, Monty, that is a good thing. because. A lot of people get into recovery through some form of intervention, whether it be a work intervention or losing a bunch of jobs or whatever. Uh, I'm all for raising the bottom of the alcoholic to get them to the point where uh, they say uncle and, uh, and start doing what they need to do to get sober, because I think, I think your quality of life is immensely improved if you're sober rather than drinking, and certainly that of your family will be.
0: Right. You bet.
1: My wife began to work in a department store, coming home exhausted to mm. find me drunk. I became an unwelcome hanger-on at brokerage places. I could see him just staggering around <laughs> drunk. Hey, uh.
0: Yeah, here he comes. Yeah, here <laughs> comes when liquor Bill.
1: ceased to be a luxury, it became a necessity. Bathtub gin, two bottles a day, and often three, got to be routine. What bathtub gin was, was it was distilled alcohol and, uh, oh, oh, what do they put in it, uh I knew this it's it's a a type of pine needle what is it um Really? Yeah, oh I can't believe I can't remember. My mind is is going to a blank. Um but it's 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 a type of uh, a type of pine needle. And you just uh, mix it all in and uh and um uh, what else? Um uh, some something else. Um uh, sugar or something. Yeah. Uh, I'll get back to you next week. Okay. That, anyways, okay. Good. That's interesting. Yeah. Sometimes a small deal would net a few hundred dollars, and I would pay my bills at the bars and delicatessens. This went on endlessly, and I began to wake very early in the morning, shaking violently. By the time you start to have, uh you start to have to detox from alcohol every morning, and, and you, you basically go into detox. What, what has happened the night before is you've poisoned yourself. You've 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 poisoned yourself with alcohol. Uh, I only learned this relatively recently, Monty, when you drink so much that you pass out and you can't be revived, yeah. which was the way I did it for, you know, 50% of the days in 1980, you're, that's actually uh, that's actually looked on by medical, medical professionals as alcohol poisoning. And if you're unlucky lucky enough to pass out in somebody's house who doesn't understand it, you'll wake up in the hospital and they'll be pumping your stomach. But that alcohol poisoning results in uh, the shakes or the delirium tremens uh, uh, when you sober up Mm -hmm. and you need to start drinking again, which is a really bad cycle to be caught in.
0: If there's anybody
1: listening tonight who's in the middle of that, you're in a lot of trouble, okay? You need medical help and you need it fast.
0: Just going to a meeting isn't probably going to suffice with that.
1: Well, you know, I mean, if you have to to drink in the morning to keep from going into convulsions Mm -hmm. or hallucinations, you need medical help and you need it fast. Um, You know, I would not bother going to the local meeting at this point in time. I would go to the local detox or hospital. Right, sure. Uh, Figure you're going to be going to meetings the rest of your life, probably, (laughs) after that. But anyway, a tumbler full of gin followed by half a dozen bottles of beer would be required if I were to eat any breakfast. Nevertheless, I still thought I can control the situation. There were periods of sobriety which renewed my wife's hope. He would go to Towns Hospital and, uh, you know, go through the, uh, go through the, the detox procedure there. And uh, he could remain sober for periods of time. A lot of alcoholics can remain sober for periods of time. The problem is is if you've crossed the line into alcoholism, the time and the place will come when you will drink again. It may be a day, it may be a week, it may be ten years. But the time and the place is going to come. The mental obsession is going to overcome all other thought, uh, uh, all other rational, reasonable thought, and you are going to put alcohol back in your body. That's the sign of a real alcoholic. Gradually things got worse. The house was taken over by the mortgage holder, my mother-in-law died, my wife and father-in-law became ill. Then I got a promising business opportunity. Stocks were at the low point of 1932, and I had somehow formed a group to buy, probably at a bar. I was to share generously in the profits. Then I went on a prodigious bender and that chance vanished. I woke up. This had to be stopped. I saw I could not take so much as one drink. I I was through forever. If you look in the Bill Wilson's Bible, he makes many promises in the Bible. I swear on this Bible, I will never drink again. Mm-hmm. And then there'll be another one. I really, really swear this time that I will never drink again. And then there's another one. I absolutely, 100%, this time, definitely swear I gonna drink again. <laughs> and he was swearing on that family Bible uh, for years. I was, before, before then, I had written lots of sweet promises in the, in the Bible, but my wife happily observed that this time I meant business, and so I did. Shortly afterward, I came home drunk. There had been no fight. Where had been my high resolve? I simply didn't know. It hadn't even come to mind. Someone had pushed a drink my way and I had taken it. Was I crazy? I began to wonder for such an appalling lack of perspective, seemed near being just that. Renewing my resolve, I tried again. Some time passed. Confidence began to be replaced by cocksureness. I could laugh at the gin mills. Now I had what it takes. One day I walked into a cafe to telephone. In no time I was beating on the bar asking myself how it had happened. As the whiskey rose to my head, head, I told myself I would manage better next time, but I might as well get good and drunk then, and I did. Monty, I, I don't know about you, but I've beaten the bar. I went into uh, I went into a 28 day treatment program. I was in the middle of outpatient uh, therapy. I was going to uh, support groups, and one day on the way to uh, to a support group meeting, the thought crossed my mind that you know it's been so it's been so long since I've 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 had a drink. I bet you if I, I got I got drunk, I would do this outpatient and this support group stuff at a different level. I'd really be enthusiastic because I'd be reminded of how terrible it is to be drunk. <laughs> So I bought a, a gallon of vodka and drank it.
0: Oh, but, wow. So
1: in effect, I drank a gallon of vodka to improve my sobriety. Now, now this is, this is just one way the obsession of the mind manifests. It doesn't care how it gets alcohol in your body, okay? Right. It can happen suddenly. The thought crosses your mind that, you know, whiskey and milk works great. It can happen very deviously. Uh, it, it doesn't matter how it happens. It happens. That's the problem. It happens, and Mm. alcohol goes back in your body. Mm -hmm. The remorse, horror, and hopelessness of the next morning are unforgettable. The courage to do battle was not there. My brain raced uncontrollably, uh, and there was a terrible sense of impending calamity. You know, that's the paranoia that happens during detox. I hardly dared cross the street lest I collapse and be run down by an early morning truck, for it was scarcely daylight. An all-night place supplied me with a dozen glasses of ale. My wreathing nerves were stilled at last. A morning paper told me that the market had gone to hell again. Well, so had I. The market would recover, but I wouldn't. That was a hard thought. Should I kill myself? No, not now. Then a mental fog settled down. Jen would fix that, so two bottles and oblivion. So what he did was, you know, in the middle of his pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization, you know, during his detox, he got a hold of some alcohol and walked himself out of that, uh, that detox and back into oblivion. The mind and body are marvelous mechanisms, for mind endured this ag- my mind endured this agony for two more years. Sometimes I stole from my wife's slender purse when the morning terror and madness were on me. Again, again, I swayed dizzily before an open window or the medicine cabinet where there was poison, cursing myself for a weakling. There were flights from city to country and back as my wife and I sought escape. Then came the night when the physical and mental torture was so hellish, I feared I would burst through my windows, smash and all. Somehow I managed to drag my mattress to a lower floor, lest I suddenly leap. Okay, picture this. How out of your mind do you have to be? He's living in like a five-story apartment building. He's probably on one of the top stories. He's so afraid that he's going to lose control and run through the window and crash down and kill himself on the street that he grabs his mattress and he starts dragging it down the stairs past all, all the other tenants in the building <laughs> so that he can sleep in the hallway down at the bottom of the, bottom of the apartment uh, building. What a picture. <laughs> I mean, you know, this, this is a picture of incredible alcoholic insanity.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> a doctor came with a heavy sedative. Uh, back then, they would use Peraldehyde or something, which... Monty, that, you, you know, the stories from, uh, from Dr. Bob's house is uh, 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 Bob Smith uh, Jr. was a speaker uh, who I heard speak one time uh, at an event in New York City, and he was, uh, he was telling the story of how he heard about, uh, how he smelled the Peraldehyde when he walked in from school, and he knew that there was a drunk, uh, there was a drunk being detoxed by his father upstairs, uh, you, the smell of peraldehyde would go through the house. Peraldehyde w- is basically like an ether or something. It would just knock you unconscious. Oh, okay. Days.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: Uh, next day found me drinking both gin and sedative. <laughs> this combination soon landed me on the rock. So now Bill Wilson is not only drinking, he's drinking and drugging. Okay. I want to mm-hmm. make that perfectly clear. Mm-hmm. These sedatives that were provided for him, yes, they were prescribed, but they were very hev- he- very heavy. Uh, uh, benzo-type sedatives uh, and or opiate-type sedatives, and he was dr- definitely drinking or drugging for his end. This combination soon landed me on the rocks. People feared for my sanity. So did I. I could eat little or nothing when drinking, and I was 40 pounds under weight. My brother-in-law is a physician, and, though his, and through his kindness and that of my mother, I was placed in a nationally known hospital for the mental and physical rehabilitation of alcoholics. Under the so-called belladonna treatment, my brain cleared. Monty, one time I was in high school, and there was an area where we would smoke, and a lot of people would bring in drugs and sell them and pass them around and turn people on. This one day a guy brought in a big bag of belladonna, and we're all like, well, what's that? He goes, oh, it's belladonna. It's a poisonous weed. And if if you eat a bunch of it, it gets you high. So I'd say five or six of us took a handful of belladonna and ate it. The reaction I got was not fun, Monty. Uh, It had a a, a type of a hallucinogenic effect, but it affected my vision. I went temporarily 90% blind. And I remember going back uh, to school the next day, and everybody's going, hey, did you go blind? Yeah, I went blind too. I I mean, it was was (laughs) a bad drug. So if they were using this for alcohol detox, believe me, they've invented better things.
0: Yeah, that sounds horrible.
1: Hydrotherapy and mild exercise helped much. Hydrotherapy, what that was, was they had these big shower cubicles with multiple shower heads. Yeah. And they would, they would wheel you in strapped down, you know, uh, like, like strapped down with, with restraints. And they would hit you with hot water hit you with cold water, hit you with hot water, hit you with cold water. Now, what what this did for alcoholism, I have no idea, but at least they ended up with a clean uh, detoxing drug.
0: <laughs>
1: Best of all, uh, I met a kind doctor who explained that, though certainly selfish and foolish, I had been seriously ill, both bodily and mentally. It, this was, of course, Dr. Silkworth. We read his... Uh, Uh, his opinion earlier on. Mm -hmm. It relieved me somewhat to learn that in alcoholics, the will is amazingly weakened when it comes to combating liquor, though it often remains strong in other respects. My incredible behavior in the face of a desperate desire to stop was explained. Understanding myself now, I fared forth in high hope. For three or four months, the goose hung high. I went to town regularly and even made a little money. Surely this was the answer, self-knowledge. So... He knew that he could not take one drink at all. But also what Silkworth is telling him is, is his willpower is reduced. So he thinks that by knowing his willpower is reduced at certain times, by knowing that, he'll be safe and protected. The problem is that <laughs> you're not. But you're not, not, right? So the frightful day came when I drank once more. The curve of my declining moral and bodily health fell off like a ski jump. After a time, I returned to the hospital. This was the finish. The curtain, it seemed to me. My weary and despairing wife was informed that it would all end with heart failure during delirium tremens, or I would develop a wet brain, perhaps within a year. A wet brain, and this is my Mm -hmm. uh, non-clinical, non-physician perspective on wet brain, it's basically dry brain. Monty, have you ever woken up after a drunk, completely dehydrated, and have to, like, stick your head under the faucet to start, you're so thirsty?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, terrible. Absolutely,
1: and that happens day after day after day sometimes. Yep. What happens is it gets to such a point that the brain gets so dehydrated that you end up getting what's called wet brain, which is uh, your brain functions are, are are very, very permanently impaired. Uh, there's a lot of uh, asylums and a lot of uh, uh, rest home type places around the country where people are in there suffering from wet brain. And you can sit there for 40 years uh, having people change your diapers and feed you with feeding tubes uh, mm. with wet brain. And all you do is sit there and drool. So wet brain is not a good thing. And it can happen after a series of really, really heavy drinking binges where you, you dehydrate your brain.
0: Can you recover from that?
1: Uh it's, it's, a, it's a non-recoverable, uh, from what I understand, wow. it's non-recoverable. Once those brain cells are, are gone, they're gone, mm-hmm. uh, much like a lot of other brain injuries. Mm. Uh, she would soon have to give me over to the undertaker or the asylum. That's what they had back then. Uh, You know, they had The Undertaker and they had had the asylum. Mm -hmm. I mean, nobody got out alive, Monty, until some of the spiritual programs started to happen. So, like, you know, the Oxford Group and some of the other things, nobody got out of alcoholism alive, except that every once in a while there would be somebody with a religious conversion experience. Otherwise, you were doomed. So there weren't a lot of places that really wanted to deal with you. Uh, They did not need to tell me. I knew and almost welcomed the idea. It was a devastating blow to my pride. I, who had thought so well of myself and my abilities of my capacity to surmount obstacles, was cornered at last. Now I was to plunge into the dark, joining that endless procession of sots who had gone on before. I thought of my poor wife. There had been much happiness, after all. What I would not give to make amends, but that was over now. He got to the point of, uh, of of complete despair. I mean, when you have a doctor tell you that you have a weakened will, you are not going to be able to stay away from alcohol, and you have have an allergy to the body, which is forcing you to drink more and more and poison yourself more and more. That's not a great diagnosis. I mean, I mean you know, uh, it, it says in this doctors are loath to tell us the whole truth sometimes. Well, they are because. Because you know, uh, the good thing—the good thing about this book—is it offers a solution. But uh, medically speaking, what Doctor Silkworth saw in the twenty thousand alcoholics that he treated was, once you get to that stage of alcoholism, you are toast. You are going to drink yourself to death. You're going to drink yourself into an asylum, or you're going to have to be lo- locked up. You know that those—those those were the choices. And that's not a pretty picture to paint to the family. You know, that's, that's basically like telling, telling the family your, your loved one has uh, stage four uh, cancer and has anywhere from two weeks to, to six months to live. Mm. No words can tell of the loneliness and despair that I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master this experience again i'll say it led him to putting together the first step uh, of recovery in the 12-step model you have been defeated Uh, you cannot marshal anything on your own that's going to be able to help you successfully battle this now there's a scale of alcoholism there are there are heavy drinkers and there are potential alcoholics and there are people who haven't gone down the scale very far who, who who may be able to use uh, self knowledge and, and a fierce determination to walk away from uh, the trap of uh, of alcohol, but I believe that uh, that once you cross a line, like it says in this book, uh, you aren't going to ha- you aren't going to be able to do that. You know, They're, the chronic alcoholic mm-hmm. is not going to be able to walk away from it without uh, without a really really transform transformational experience happening to them. Trembling, I stepped from the hospital a broken man. Fear sobered me for a bit. Then came the insidious insanity of that first drink on Armistice Day 1934. Let me tell you the story about this. He finally, you know, he finally, this was the last time he he really thought he was in a lot of trouble, but he he was able to stay sober that last detox. And he showed up, uh, Armistice Day, he showed up at a golf club. He hadn't been golfing in a while, and he decided, you know, I've been sober a couple of months, I'm going to go golf. He's sitting at the bar having a club soda, and he's explaining to the bartender about alcoholism and how how he's an alcoholic, and he's going on and on about the mental obsession. He's going on and on about the craving. He's telling him all his war stories about how bad the drinking was and how many times he'd been in the hospital and how the doctor said, you know, this is a fatal condition, that if you know, he's, he's going to drink himself to death, and he's talking to the bartender, and he's having club sodas, and the bartender basically says to him, wow. You know, you're, you're really amazing. You know, you're amazing that, that you've gone through this, and here you are drinking club soda. And five minutes later, he asks for a tumbler of gin. And the bartender goes, up and goes <laughs> you, after what you told me, yeah. you have to be completely insane That's to right. be asking for a drink. And, and Bill says something like, yeah, I, I know. You know, make it a double. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is how insidious the obsession of the mind can be. Everyone became resigned to the certainty that I would have to be shut up somewhere or would stumble along to a miserable end. How dark it is before the dawn. In reality, that was the beginning of my last debauch. I was soon to be catapulted into what I like to call the fourth dimension of existence. I was to know happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life that is incredibly more wonderful as time passes. Near the end of that bleak November, I sat drinking in my kitchen. With certain satisfaction, I reflected that there was enough gin concealed about the house to carry me through that night and the next day. My wife was at work. I wondered where I de- whether I dared hide a full bottle of gin near the head of our bed. I would need it before daylight. Uh, Monty, I think I'm going to stop here tonight because there's a, there's two real parts to Bill's story as I see it. Okay. One of them is his experience as an active alcoholic. And that's basically the first eight pages of Bill's story. Then it talks about his how he got sober and his experience going through the steps and what it's like today. Sure. In the second eight pages. Now some sometimes when, when uh when someone is uh uh is working with me on the steps what I'll do is I'll have them uh, highlight everything in the first eight pages of Bill's story that they relate to. Drinking, thinking, uh, behavior. Okay? Uh Highlight everything that Bill did that you relate to from your own personal experience. And in the second uh, eight pages uh, of Bill's story, highlight anything that you have resistance to, any of the things that Bill said he did to recover. Highlight anything that you're will, not willing to do right now. And that'll give me some kind of an idea of where someone is in their first step truth.
0: That's good.
1: It is good. Monty, what are some of the things that you related to with Bill's story? <laughs> uh, I, I know there has to be some.
0: Oh, yeah, you betcha, you betcha. Well, <laughs> one that's, that stands out, of course, is, is the, um, you know, this time, you know, you, you know those declarations. This time, and we talked about his Bible. Uh, This time, God, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do this again. And it it wouldn't be even when I was real sick. Of course, I always did when I was hungover. Uh, But it would be in times when, uh, even in sobriety, when I would see the damage that that had occurred because of my drinking um, that I really couldn't see clearly when I was drunk. I saw it when I was sober, and I said, well, I'm just not going to go back to that. That's not going to happen. And then I... You know, definitely would go back, uh, and I wrote in my Bible as well. In fact, I remember writing, thinking I was going to die once, and I wrote uh, a note in the Bible to my family because I didn't think I was going to make it through the night. Uh, the uh, the things, you know, I don't I don't know that I was oppo- opposed to uh, to much of anything. I was so desperate, you know, I I really was, and. Uh, so I can't say that I was opposed to um, the things that uh, the, the, these next pages, like next week we're going to be talking about. Uh, but I don't know. I'll have to think about that one. Okay, we'll talk about the
1: pages next week. Uh, but, but certainly I believe that... Um
0: Oh, I know, one more thing I was going to tell you. Sure, sure. (laughs) Um, In the very beginning, uh, when he says, my talent for leadership, I imagine, would place me at the the head of Vast Enterprise. Boy, did I ever think that of myself. (laughs) I really, really did. Um, I had an education. I had all these great ideas. uh, And it was so interesting because uh, I was very, very good at pulling the wool over people's eyes and even though I had an education and I had uh, different pieces of paper and so forth I could make it look like I had accomplished a whole lot more and was able to snow myself but then when when it got to a certain point in, in different careers uh, and they were usually high managerial careers where I couldn't snow anybody I would sabotage it and I would drink again
1: you know that's that's something I've, I experienced also uh, again I was a great starter and I could build up a bright outlook for my my employer and and everyone around me, and then bring it crashing down with uh, a series of sprees. I think also what what alcoholics like to do a lot is they like to be their own boss. They like to be self-employed. You know that that ha- that happens. Uh, that certainly uh, certainly happens a lot too. Uh, Ouch. You, you know. Well, you, you and me, you and me both, basically. But, yeah, yeah. But uh, but uh, you know, um, I think that um, I think. You know, here's what I here's a funny thing. What I believed when uh, when I was drinking, I thought I had a dark, complicated personality, someone who saw truth at such a level that it caused me great anguish, and I needed to drink to overcome this 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 unbelievably acute consciousness that I had. You know, I was, I was so, so much more in tune to what really goes on than anybody else. You know, I mean, I had these, uh, and that really is a, a grandia, an intellectual grandiosity. You know, I. What I was was I was insane. You know, <laughs> I was uh, I was dying of uh, of alcoholism, and and the mind was was being was being uh, you know was was being hijacked into you know doing whatever it needed to do to get the alcohol back in the body. You know, the, the alcohol back in the body was more important than any thought price processes I might have had. And mm-hmm. you know, one of the things that uh, I'll I'll probably say this ten times during uh, during the the this series. Is that the alcoholic is always in more trouble than they think they are, and the twelve-step recovery process is a more significant answer for their problems than they'll ever give it credit for, especially at the beginning.
0: Mm. Good point. You know? Good point.
1: But uh, but as far as uh, you know, as as far as hitting bottom, I, I believe I believe that you don't have to go to the Depths uh, of despair that uh, that Bill Wilson went to. I mean, you don't have to be drinking bathtub gin and unemployed for eight years. Uh, there's help out there. There's there's uh, there's interventionary methods of uh, of getting your life back together. I don't think there was back when Bill was around, or there were, or they were. Uh, you know they were very obscure like like who would have gone to the oxford group for alcoholism treatment it wouldn't have made any sense no it actually worked but it wouldn't have made any sense and and so uh you know so i don't think that in this day and age with uh the advent of uh, uh addictions and alcoholism treatment and you know uh eap counselors in large companies and you know, pe- people, uh, people being trained in brief interventions, you know, like your doctors, police, all those people are they're starting to get trained in brief interventions so that they can, they can actually see alcoholism and point it out to you that it's an illness and you're ill and you need treatment. Um, I, I, think, I think that's headed in the right direction. Now all we have to do is figure out why the government has made it almost impossible to pay for treatment. You know, that's one oh, of the things that we need
0: to figure out. I know, it's pathetic
1: it really is it really really is. is
0: well my friend another great show it's uh it's always a delight and looking into uh, the life of uh, Bill W., <laughs> you know, I hear one of the things that I, that I think we all hear is what a scoundrel he was and, and what a snake and all this kind of thing, shrewd businessman and all. But you know what? He was God's scoundrel. He was God's snake. He was the one that God <laughs> put his hand on. And we have this wonderful fellowship. Uh, uh, you know, a lot of it is credited to, to him.
1: I love the fact that he was, uh, he was so nefarious at times. Uh, that, that makes him authentic to me. It does. I, I, don't think, I don't think this message could have come from a saint, you
0: know? No. No, not at all. Not at all. Send us the tax collectors and the thieves, man. Absolutely. <laughs> all right, my friend. Thank you so much once again. And I know you have something to go off to, and so do I. I've got to uh, try to figure out where to put these poor fish.
1: <laughs> well, good luck to you, Monty. Uh, congratulations on the on the new uh, studio. It's it's well deserved. Uh, you're doing you're doing really great work, and uh, God bless you.
0: Well, thank you, Chris. Folks, don't forget next week to come back once again as we walk through the big book. Bye bye now.